welcome again to Scuttlebutt. Um, I'm here with uh, William, and we are honored to uh, be sitting with Dr. Mark DeVore, um, who is a uh, senior lecturer at the University of uh, St. Andrews in the UK. So, sir, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Vic, for the invitation. And this is really great. So this is sort of um, an ad hoc series that we've been doing since Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, and, you know, to be quite honest, um, you know, between myself, William and uh, Nick, and then a few of the guests that we've had on, you know, we've tried from the very high, high cheap seats to bring some sort of coherence to what's going on. Um, so this is really great uh, having you as an uh, international affairs expert who specializes in this kind of stuff, um, really to be on here to sort of help guide us <laughs> along the right way to look at this uh, this war. Um, and you mentioned that you were just in Sweden talking this very issue, correct? That's correct. It was sort of, it was a bit ironic because it was for a hybrid warfare conference dealing with how the United States and NATO allies um, had responded to previous Russian hybrid threats. The conference was supposed to occur about two years ago, but due to COVID, it got postponed three times. Up until the point when the conference actually occurred, it was 20 days or so into uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So it was a very fortuitous event that one gets a bunch, you know, an international group of sort of experts in how European countries are responding to Russian threats who happen to be meeting at the same time up in uh, northern Sweden to uh, to discuss it. But the, the conference was actually planned well in advance of uh, Russia's invasion. Yeah, I was going to say... I was going to say it's tragically fortuitous, uh, especially to be in Sweden of all places, too. I mean, I, I don't know if the stars had aligned, could align any more perfectly for that conference. It was it was great. It was a bit it was a bit remarkable also that everybody's draft chapters practically just ended mid sentence. <laughs> yeah. So you can sort of see that people were working on their drafts. Then the war starts 24th of February. And nobody makes any more progress. Right, right. So, that, that, uh, watch. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it's uh, it was a sort of remarkable um, events overtaking scholarship type of uh, type of event. <laughs> well, um, for uh, if you wouldn't mind if just taking a little bit, then um, clearly uh, you're on the forefront of what's going on and the analyses and, and sort of the the intellectual side of what's going on. Um, could you at least, could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you got to St. Andrews and um, how you got into this field? So getting to St. Andrews was a long set of accidents. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in Southern California. Oh, uh, nice. Where? So Orange County. Uh, oh, so... me too. I'm San Clemente. Okay, yeah, no, so we're, we practically grew up neighbors there. Um, and having, you know, having been in the Boy Scouts, my, my troop uh, growing up was run by a bunch of old Marines who'd sort of yeah. been through Vietnam and retired, and their kids had gone through the Scouts and grown up, and they sort of liked running a Scout organization, so they kept doing so, so... Um, yeah, grew up with a fair amount of contact with the Marines. El Toro Marine Base was still there, and then yep. a fair amount of our camps were down uh, over by Camp Pendleton. Uh, so grew up there, uh, did my PhD at MIT uh, in uh, focusing in strategic studies and comparative politics. And from then had a number of interesting experiences. So I actually took out some time during my PhD to go work as national security advisor to the president of the Central African Republic. Wow. Um, which was through a series of accidents, but for five months I found myself trying to 
advise on the reforms of one of the least functional and most decrepit military organizations on this planet. <laughs> so so e pretty easy, kind of a relaxing yeah. hosting. <laughs> you left them better than when you came there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I lost the job when a rebel general entered the Capitol. Oh, okay. So, so I, I lost it under pretty dramatic circumstances. So, at least all else was your job. I was in Brussels at the time uh, on sort of a, an errand for the president, but um, which was fortunate uh, in that I didn't end up having to hide in the French embassy as the former prime minister uh, did yeah. for several months before they were able, able to negotiate his extrication. The U.S. Embassy was closed at, the, at that time because uh, the situation on the ground in Bangui had become uh, su sufficiently fraught. Um, in addition to the purely academic work, I uh, had that bit of experience in the Central African Republic. I worked for a while as the assistant to a ver very elderly war correspondent and ended up covering the last of the wars in the Balkans, uh, the 2001 war in Macedonia. Um, also because of bad maps, I ended up getting arrested by Serbian paramilitaries, which was not one of the most entertaining experiences of my life. My goodness. Wow. Um, and then besides that, I've done some research in Libya, Iraq, Southern Lebanon. Uh, but most of my work has been focusing on the political economy of defense, the international arms trade, military innovation, uh, and issues like that. Wow, what a uh, what an interesting journey. Yeah, I was looking at some of your works, and I saw that you had done a lot of, um, you know, deep dives into like Libya and um, sort of the the Middle Eastern situation, North African. Um, so how did you find yourself being uh, sort of in the know, if you will, of Ukraine, Russia? I mean, sort of, sort of accidentally. Uh, so origin sort of came, you know, I mean, I guess I've, any of us who look at strategic issues and particularly the arms trade, look at the Russians. I mean, Russia has historically been the world's second largest export of armaments. Um, even though Russia has a defense budget that's usually somewhere between 10 to 20% of what the United States is, Russia exports about 80% of the value of armaments as the US has on an annual basis. So for anybody who's sort of at all interested in the political economy of defense, you run into Russian weapons everywhere. Right. Yes. I have seen that, uh, unfortunately, firsthand. <laughs> yeah. And it's and, and the conflict zone. Yeah. The only thing that changes with conflict zone is how obsolete or how modern are the Russian weapons. Yeah, right. Exactly. But it's, yeah, you know, I mean, it, yeah, the question is, is are you running into a new Dushka or an old Dushka? Is it uh, are you running into an S, you know, to a sort of 300 millimeter smash or an old grad? Um, but you sort of run into the Russians, uh, you know, in an almost ubiquitous yeah. fashion. Yeah, yeah. Then in the lead up to this war, I mean, there was the two years ago when I was basically asked to contribute the UK chapter on this book on essentially looking at Western responses to Russian hybrid threats. Uh, and then more recently in the Ironically, at the very beginning of February, I, I was asked to participate in an event being held at West Point to prepare talking points for the NATO 2022 security concept. So these things had me thinking of and doing a sort of deep dive into what is the challenge that Russia poses and how ought one to respond to that uh, before Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a tremendous segue. Thank you for <laughs> helping with that um, into you know what's going on now. So you know, um, for our listeners or, or 
hopefully aware that um, you know, we've been covering as much as we can what's been going on and, and you know, we did a sort of a look at some of the historical um, implications, um, trying to sort of, for lack of a better term, bring truth to some of the rhetoric about uh, Putin's justification for entering into uh, this war. Um, and then we looked at, you know, some current events through a tactical and operational lens. Um, but and, and so I think to to overly simplify where we're at uh, as a show uh, on this thing is none of us are really able, we're very surprised we are where we are. I think when we first aired our first episode, we really were afraid that by the by the time it aired, if we made it through the weekend and the Ukrainians hadn't completely folded, then that would be a win. Six weeks later, here we are. And it actually looks like they're tar- starting to take ground back. So that's our surprise. What What about you? What is What has surprised you about all of this? I mean, I'd say I've a lot of things have surprised me. Uh, I I think that as as with you and most others, I was caught by how utterly flubbed the Russian offensive was. Uh, I mean, I I did not have this. I was more skeptical about Russian military capabilities than most. Um, And for me, that was mainly derived from just the political economy of it. You know, Russia has, spends a little bit more on defense than Britain or France. It's roughly at the level, on average, of about 15% of the US. But Russia has a force structure, which is two thirds the size of the United States is. So, I mean, Russia has, 900,000 active personnel versus 1.395 million for the United States. So to put it in car terms, a Toyota Camry is about 15% the value of a Ferrari F8. (laughs) Right. If you know that somebody has a Toyota Camry budget, but you see a Ferrari F8 in their driveway, you know that they're cutting corners somewhere. Right, right. (laughs) It's now, sort of, exactly, and yeah, maybe they're really good at pen, penny pinching. Right. Uh, yeah, I did not. Yeah, obviously, I suspected that they probably underinvested in training, and that some of the modernization was skin deep. But my real insights were not much deeper than that. Just that uh, the Russian military is an appearance a lot larger and a lot shinier than the budget they have behind it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's really that's interesting. That's really that's interesting. interesting. We think about like um, uh, how some of the Intel folks have admitted that they may have overestimated Russia and that there were some gaps in there. So as you were um, coming to these discussions with your with your skepticism, were you met with some apprehension or were you getting a lot of pushback on your skepticism that it was a sort of dangerous to underestimate the Russian sort of thing? Yeah, or I I guess more so within the first few days there was a there was sort of an issue of what's the point of even discussing aid to give the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians are not going to be in the war long enough to receive the aid. Right, right, right. Um so uh, there, there was that. And I do have a lot of sympathy for the Russia strategic studies community, uh, you know, for the strategic com- studies community in the West that focuses on Russia, um, because the Russians were so good at fooling us because they fooled themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, our... Russia experts were reading the types of things being published in uh, Russian military journals, understood their doctrine, understood their own concept of their capabilities. But the problem is that the Russians deluded themselves in terms of what they were capable of, which I think raises some pretty profound issues about how does one study authoritarian militaries? Mm. Uh, you know, authoritarian militaries tend to keep anything that looks like weakness or any, you know, sort of contrary 
types of publications out of the public view. Exercises tend to be stage managed to convey an impression of strength. And all of the incentives from the bottom up are ones to project more power and project more certainty than probably exists. Interesting. So I guess, so looking at, um, you know, and you you know, uh, Dr. Michael Hunziker, friend of the show, um, and uh, you know, we've sort of taken a pretty, you know, we've taken a look at his book, Dying to Learn, and about organizations' abilities to adapt to um, to use ingenuity on the fly in the midst of conflict. So if we take an example of things that have sort of led up to where we are now, if we look at, say, Syria, the air campaign in Syria, um, so the annexation of Crimea and Donbass, had they had that sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy then is that they'd had this um, self-focused propaganda to bolster themselves, sort of fool themselves, and then actually saw it at a limited scale be successful. Um, granted, you know, all of the atrocities and war crimes that happened in Syria are probably not something they necessarily consider. And then there was so much gray zone activity uh, in Crimea and in Donbass, but yet they were wins. If you wanted to just chalk it up to X's and O's, they won. So did they really think, do you think they were overconfident then in going into uh, Ukraine, even though they hadn't really launched a ground conventional ground war in forever? Yeah, obviously they were overconfident. Uh, you know, I don't, and probably they were overconfident on a number of different fronts. Uh, you know, strike most investigations of airplane accidents, you know, your typical Boeing or Airbus today is so well designed that no accident occurs because any single fault occurs. Mm. You, know, you have four separate processors uh, controlling flight control. These aircraft can usually fly for some distance and land if with one of the engines out of commission. Um, there's a fair amount of redundancy that pilot error is also usually not a major cause. So for any for a Boeing or an Airbus to crash usually requires at least two major faults to occur in different systems. Mm. And it seems to me that probably the same is true with Russian military um, planning for this war. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that there's probably two things that there's well, probably three things that they really got fundamentally wrong. One is, as as you said, I think that Russia has not, since 1999 and the Second Chechen War, has not really had to conduct any sort of large offensive involving their own, their own land forces. Yep. In Syria, they contributed artillery, they contributed air power, they sent a few modern tanks, but most of the actual offensive power provided in Syria was collections of forces being put at the disposal of the Assad regime by a variety of different actors, whether that was Hezbollah, the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards as Quds Force, the small number of sort of Alawite militias and loyal uh, units of uh, that regime that were grouped together under Tiger Force. Um, but the Russians were not actually, the Russians were in a supporting role. And in 2014, uh, with Yanukovych's government, which basically imploded, and then uh, a new Ukrainian regime that came into power in very uncertain circumstances, there was they were able to seize things from a regime that was essentially not in the cockpit. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So then as we're looking at sort of the failures of the Russian military, we're seeing the successes of the Ukrainian defense force. All of it seems to be at the tactical level. And obviously 
for where they are. That's obviously the most important. But it, are those microcosms of a larger issue, especially as we're looking at Russia on the operational strategic side of it? Or is it just that at the strategic level, they've got some other thing going on? Things that are going on at the tactical level are sort of masking or are um, uh, deceiving us so that they can then secure whatever strategic objective they want. Yeah, I don't I don't think that Putin is playing 5G, uh, you know, five dimensional chess. Uh, I certainly have the impression that, uh, and this has been an issue with the Russians and then before them the Soviets for a very long time. The Soviet military was very good at the operational level and frequently extremely poor at the tactical level. Uh, and Soviet doctrine always emphasized, what do you do after you break through? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and there you have quite a bit of complex doctrine that impressed everybody in the West about uh, simultaneously attacking throughout the enemy's depth, uh, going deep, producing operational shock or udar as uh, the Soviets tended to like to term it. And certainly when it worked at the very end of World War II, these, the Soviet operational art produced impressive results. Now the problem is, is you can only start doing impressive operational stuff if you've managed to break through. Mm -hmm. And the Soviets oftentimes failed to break through because they were not very good at or systematic at sort of combined arms warfare. Right. But we think we definitely see that playing out now where everything is seems like it's scripted and phases don't overlap. There's no sort of um, exit and entry criteria going from one phase to the next. It's just do this now. Okay, that's over. Now go do this thing. Now go do this next thing. Yeah, I mean, I think their initial offensive they attacked in a lot of, compared to sort of American or Western doctrine, there were far more breakthrough attempts. There were far more axes of advance than one would have expected to see from, say, say an American war plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was that in part to their understanding of like Ukrainian potential resistance? I think that that was certainly based on a perception that the Ukrainians would fold. But it's also consistent with Russian doctrine that emphasizes that more breakthroughs and a faster advance will produce this sort of systematic shock that will produce an almost rolling collapse of an enemy's ability to fight. Now, the problem here is that in dispersing their effort and in flubbing so many breakthrough attempts, they broke through nowhere. Right, right. Yeah, it really... And so... To that extent, then, are we looking at something as simple as, hey, the Ukrainians are just really good fighters and the Russians just aren't? Or is this something like more comp complicated, whereas, well, maybe, like you said, being on a large force with a smaller budget, that they've focused their modernization efforts on a more elite sort of cadre, and we just haven't seen those forces come in yet? Or are we, are we really now like sort of through the looking glass and see that Russia is quite literally a paper tiger all the way through? I think all of the above. Okay. Uh, the, from my perspective, the Russians were trying to carry out an extremely complex campaign plan that they ha in no way had the training or skills to execute. Um, now, I would say that Russia did concentrate its modernization efforts on certain elite forces, uh, but we also saw, but they've been very heavily committed. The initial sort of coup de main effort to take uh, Kiev relied very heavily on uh, the VDV. Um, and it seems as though Spitznaz was also very heavily called upon here. So they certainly, and those elite forces have taken enormous casualties. So this isn't just a matter of, hey, we're just going to throw all of our cannon fodder at you initially 
wear you down and then we're going to give you the, the you know the overhand right once you're all dazed and confused no i uh, no i mean we've we've seen in russian military terms there's about four or so different types of elites i mean there's spitznaz that belongs to the gru i mean those are probably the closest equivalent would be something like us army rangers they're not yeah they're not really the same standard as Green Berets or SAS in terms of the complexity of what they try to do, but you know they're fit, they're fit motivated people who are designed to operate as light infantry, kicking the door down and shooting things. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the VDV, which is airborne but has basically evolved into helicopter-borne uh, infantry, also relatively motivated, also relatively light. There's naval infantry, and then there's a small number of armored units, which tend to be viewed as exploitation forces. But we've seen basically all of those committed. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, we have seen sort of the Russian A-team committed and taking enormous casualties. So, and so what is it then about the Ukrainians? Um, what is it that they're able to Is it just because they're a caged animal and they've got nowhere else to go or because I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to I guess wrap my head around and tease out here is is that we've got essentially two former Soviet yeah. nations one who were the Soviets and then one that was a you know a, a, a sort of a assimilated Soviet uh, and so they follow a, much of the similar doctrine and so is Russia just so mired in their own antiquated soviet doctrine and the ukrainians know it and so they're easily they can easily manipulate it or what what is happening here that a force that we figured was only going to last a few hours has lasted you know going into its second month now i wish i had the full story there uh now i think there's probably a number a number of things going on uh one thing that i think it's worth mentioning is we always and this is you know the us uk western countries we always spend a lot more time trying to understand our potential enemies than our potential friends. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so there's been times when I've been invited over to South Korea and you look and you have tons of stuff written about the North Korean military, yeah, its strengths, its weaknesses, a lot of it sort of tea leaf reading because uh, that's not a particularly open regime. Right. <laughs> but a lot less effort goes into understanding the South Koreans who are more powerful and are also our putative allies. Um, and I think we have the same issue with Ukraine. There were, you know, there's a lot of studies, a lot of articles, books, analyses, looking at the Russians, their military modernization efforts, their campaigns. When you look at the Ukrainians, it's almost crickets. Right. There's, there's ve very few Western analysts have actually really tried to understand how the Ukrainians have modernized and what they've tried to do since 2014. Um, and therefore, they were able to surprise us. Uh, now, I would guess that the surprising us is a result of sort of three things. One, obviously, they're very well, they're very highly motivated. Two, defense is a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, a combined arms offensive is difficult because you have to be able to get a lot of complex stuff to operate together, whether that's rolling artillery barrages, suppression. Um, yeah, you need the tanks to protect the infantry, but you need to protect the, the, the tanks from, from anti-tank missiles. Right. Coordinating air on station, figuring out all that stuff. And then logistics, which we've seen they're absolutely abysmal at. Yeah. Air, logistics, uh, and the Russians were not able to put together that sort of symphony of different instruments working together. We haven't seen whether the Ukrainians can. Right. It's a lot easier to defend if, particularly as the Russians were sort of rushing with relatively few flank guards into urban areas, which happened to be the major transportation nodes, um, so in some ways, they ended up putting themselves into a situation where they were at their worst because they were fighting a combined arms battle that they were not particularly good at. Right. 
And they were facing the Ukrainians who were able to come at them with a lot of bravery and a lot of essentially sophisticated small arms. Mm. Um, so I think that explains the defensive successes. I'm a little bit concerned that the Ukrainians may attempt to launch major counteroffensives, not necessarily understanding that what they've been so successful at up until now is an easier task. Right. It's been a defensive fight. Shifting to the offense is monumentally more complex. We're looking at the map over uh, of the advances that Ukrainians have made over the past weekend. Is that more? Is that less like ability of Ukrainians to actually gain initiative, or are they just following through on Russian retreats in these situations? I mean, the two are the two are interconnected, but it's yeah. You know, the the Russians have clearly recognized that their initial country killing offensive failed, and the Russians are regrouping for some lesser objective. Now, I have two guesses as to what that objective is. Yes, please. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Uh, yeah, one would really want to have satellite information to know what they're going at. But if the Russians can generate sufficient reserves, one would, might expect an attempted double envelopment of Ukrainian forces east of the Dnieper River. You know, if you look at the way that ground is still relatively ideal tank territory, there's very few natural obstacles if the Russians achieved a breakthrough. And in the way in which the initial Russian success in the South uh, played into it, one has a relatively large salient. Um, now, I don't know whether the Russians can produce enough armored exploitation forces to pull that off. Yeah, but, and to sustain them too, right? And to sustain them. But that, that would be sort of what one would, that would be the Russian Voroshilov Academy sort of school solution would be you fail in the one offensive, you pull back, you concentrate some reserves, try to develop a couple of brigades worth of armored exploitation forces, and then you try to do a double envelopment, uh, rolling up Ukrainian forces east of the Dnieper. If, Ukraine, if the Russians don't have the resources to do that, then it's probably doubling down onto a offensive, heavily relying on indirect fires. Mm. Uh, you know, the one thing that the Russians have in abundance is artillery. Uh, and they've, their number of sorties is also ticking up. Um, and unless we manage to get higher altitude air defense systems to the Ukrainians or keep the Ukrainian Air Force flying, uh, the Russians will be in a position of at least being able to inflict a lot of damage on Ukrainian civilians from the air, even if they won't be able to necessarily defeat dispersed Ukrainian forces. Do you think in this situation, it sort of becomes an amalgamation of like dusting off the old Grozny playbook and then sort of overlaying it with what they did in Syria? Yeah, I think that would be, uh, if they don't have the forces to go for an envelopment east of the Dnieper, I think that some combination of a Grozny Aleppo playbook. Yeah. Um, of probably try to secure a land bridge and then simply inflict so much civilian suffering, create enough refugees that uh, you'll be able to, you know, everybody's been very welcoming in the short term for Ukrainian refugees. But if Russia can succeed at displacing more and making it seem a longer-term issue, that will weigh on European elections and electorates. Yeah. Um, and if the Ukrainians have no plausible way of regaining territory but are continuing to suffer sufficient, significant losses for wanting to stay in the fight, then they may sign a disadvantageous peace agreement. And so then what does that mean? I mean, we're already seeing as the uh, Russians are withdrawing from areas and Ukrainians are taking area back. You were seeing uh, evidence of mass graves, tons and tons of civilian losses. We've already seen that the bombing campaign is indiscriminate from the Russian side. 
what does this mean then? There's a lot of rhetoric about war criminals and humanitarian um, uh, crises, but is does that where it stops? And you'd mentioned, you know, when it starts weighing heavy on European electorates, is there going to be a stomach to adjudicate these war crimes and to seek justice for the Ukrainians? Or is this just what we do in the midst of a war is just talk trash about the other guy? <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, I think we're going to, we're seeing a natural experiment at that at this moment. Uh, and I mean, I guess in particular is if, if they do go into that hybrid Grozny Aleppo playbook, it's only going to get worse. And as you'd mentioned, that's a, it seems like that's even a, might even be a strategic objective is to just pound them into submission. Yeah, and this is one of the areas where the Russians are confusing. I mean, the Russians write a lot about doctrine. In fact, it makes for some of the most boring <laughs> reading in the international <laughs> military lexicon. But the, the Russians like talking about the doctrine of everything, except for they never really spell out a doctrine of brutality or coercion, the sort of why and the how is it being done. So we see repeatedly the Russians having recourse to civilian targeting, indiscriminate violence, and then just out-and-out massacres. But we don't really, there is no public Russian doctrinal playbook. Mm. So we don't really know how do they conceive of it themselves. And in some ways, it shocked me how quickly we saw bound individuals shot in the street. Because usually that has seemed in things like the Chechen Wars to be something that comes about as almost a logic of desperation. But they started to behave this way far, far before they became desperate. And in some ways in Syria, a lot of this was written off to the Russians don't have enough precision guided munitions. You know, 97% of the, of the bombs that the Russians dropped in Syria were dumb bombs. So if you don't have smart bombs, then you're dropping dumb bombs. If your intelligence is not very good, then you're dropping those dumb bombs on approximate targets. Um, so we know that the Russians are brutal, but we don't really have a good grounded understanding about what they think they're going to get out of their brutality. So it's like almost like a almost a clumsiness, a brutality of clumsiness vice of strategy. It's or desperation. Yes, yeah, so maybe so it's either brutality of clumsiness or it's sort of a view of hard war in almost the sort of uh, William Tecumseh Sherman variety of it, that raising the costs of war is going to make your opponent less willing to do it. Um, as of this moment, it seems to be incredibly counterproductive for them in Ukraine. Sure. So does that then give them, in a sense, I guess, to look at this legally, sort of a plausible deniability when we in the West say war crimes and they go, nope, we just don't have precision guided munitions. Sorry. <laughs> is that is that sort of how that goes? Um, I mean, I, I mean, that, that, nev that issue never really came up in Syria or, you know, the issue never really came up in that way in either Syria or Chechnya. Right. Where Russia... I mean, actually, to the contrary, in Syria, Russia was pretending that it was dropping a lot more precision-guided munitions than it was. Because while most of their gun bombs were dumb bombs, which incentivized relatively poor targeting, they wanted to make their air campaign look like the American campaign. Right. I mean, in some ways, they aspire to look like the American military. So whenever they dropped a smart bomb, they would televise it. Sure. Ad nauseum. Right, right, right. Like, uh, like an Instagram feed or something. <laughs> I'm just going to show you what I want you to see. So, so their response was more of just saying, the people we bombed precisely were all Islamic State fighters. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's been their typical response in the past. I would imagine that these days, if any imagery of destroyed things in Ukraine come appears on Russian TV, they will describe themselves as striking a headquarters of the Azov Brigade's neo-Nazis. Nazis, yeah, yeah. 
And so would there, you think there'll be a stomach whenever this, when whatever it looks like when this is over, whenever it's over, do you think there'll be the stomach, the appetite to go after uh, Russians for crimes against humanity? Or is it just going to be more rhetoric um, and they're just sort of the impenetrable fortress of, of Russia on these sorts of issues? I think that's a really complicated issue. So uh, a lot of that depends on how long the Putin administration is in power and what replaces it. Because as long as the current Russian regime is in power, nobody is going to be prosecuted for these war crimes unless they make a mistake of doing a holiday on the French Riviera. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't, you know, so, but we've of course seen that in the past. uh, Radovan Karadzic or Mladic yeah. or Slobodan Milosevic, none of the individuals who were indicted by the former Yugoslavia war crimes tribunal ever came to justice while Milosevic was still in power. Um, but on the other hand, the downside of this and the risk is that the threat of prosecution obliges and increases the stake that Putin's inner circle feels in his remaining in power. Because if you feel that Putin's ability to protect, to shield you from being prosecuted for the crime you committed in Ukraine is the only thing that's going to prevent you from being handed over to the Hague, then you may be much more willing to repress protesters when you're called to repress protesters in Moscow. Mm. And you may be much less willing to orchestrate a military coup when you and your buddies all get together and sort of ask how did Russia's situation become so dire Mm, I see so it's like it's basically whoever's got skin in the game is going to basically protect their necks um, in whatever form or fashion that looks like that's my fear yeah yeah Uh, I guess shifting gears on that then like what what is the end state then for Putin here? Like, can can we believe the propaganda that this is really just an attempt to rid the Ukraine of neo Nazis because they're contaminating our you know our Russian brothers and sisters? Or um, is there do, is it as simple as hey we just need a warm weather port with access to the Black Sea? Or like, what is this for him? I mean, I think that's changing on a daily basis. Uh, you know, he began the offensive with very expansive aim. I mean, you know, as far as I can tell, um, his original objective was to basically was basically regime change, get rid of Zelensky's regime and put in a pliant regime that would look like Lukashenko in Belarus. Okay. Um, sort of replace a democratic government that wants to join the EU and NATO with some with sort of basically a client regime that would be happy playing second fiddle um, to Russia and would be a happy member of the Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, Now, obviously, he thought he could accomplish that relatively easily. Right. And that went dramatically poorly for him. Right. Um. But I think that was his his original objective was quite expansive. I mean, I think we saw that in his speech where he sort of, you know, what what I've sometimes heard referred to as his geriatric Hitler speech, where it's sort of, you know, the where it's sort of the uh, intellectual content of Hitler with the charisma of Brezhnev rolled together, uh, <laughs> where he's giving his long-winded explanation about the Kievian Rus and, you know, his journey through Russian history of claiming that Ukraine's not a real place uh, to end with his proclamation that he's going to denazify the place in a with a special military operation. Um, so he began there. Now, I think at the moment, Putin is searching for a win that is less than his original goals, but is still going to would still be a definitive win because the scope of these losses, the you know the extent of the sanctions means that I think that he has got to be very 
worried about his own survival, um, at least political survival, if it if he can't at the end of the day say that he achieved a better end state than Russia began with. Yeah, and is, is that is he sort of the comic book supervillain that we seem to be seeing, or is there a more almost juvenile worldview going on for him where he feels that um that he he can't see the realities of what's happening or he won't allow himself to see the realities of what's happening and it's still very much this dichotomy of russians versus everybody else sort of thing yeah i mean i think probably both are going on at the same time uh so I think he, I mean, he certainly has a nostalgia for the Soviet Union and for Russia's great power. I mean, in 2005, he gave his speech referring to the Soviet Union's collapse as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe that's ever happened or happened in the 20th century, um, which is still pretty impressive because he's saying that it's worse than, you know, the Nazis or um, uh, or any of the tumult that China went through. Um, but still, that's <clears throat> that's at least a level of geopolitical nostalgia that he has. Yeah. Now, I think that more pragmatically, he did have a vision. I don't think he ever realistically thought he was going to reassemble the Soviet Union, but he did have some sort of vision of Russia as a pivotal player in a multipolar world. You know, I think he sort of thought that the world was evolving in a direction where the Chinese would be on one side and the Americans and the Europeans would be on another. And Russia, with its sort of satellites and its sphere of influence, would in some ways be the fulcrum or the critical weight that could throw itself one way or the other in this era of multipolarity. And he was, I think, really aspiring to multipolarity and sort of being... I think he saw Russia as the weakest of three of the three major poles, but he saw it as the critical make weight. Yeah, sort of the linchpin between all of it. Interesting. Um, so, and I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit with us. I, I guess there's a one uh, question. Actually, William, do you have anything? I'll go ask your uh, question, then I'll, I'll pop in one more. Okay. So, as we're looking then at this, um, what? What does it? What happened? What, what are we looking at next? You think? What's the dust settles here? Assuming that for the most part, Ukraine is able to re- remain an independent, sovereign nation, uh, whether it has to, like you say, sort of take a, a a shitty deal and give up some of its uh, Donbass and, and Crimean regions, or uh, if some lesser deal, but it's still as a whole. Ukraine. What does that mean for the rest of Europe and Eastern Europe then? Are we are we are we still are we looking at a potential EU with Ukraine in it or are we talking now full NATO uh induction to help stymie any future uh thoughts of aggression or you know what does this mean for Belarus and Hungary now that um Orban got reelected? Um should you Sort of, because I guess what I'm thinking is, is if this continues to go south for the Russians and they continue to sort of devalue themselves in this fight, are we now looking at a world where the only thing that we're scared of the Russians is their nukes? Yeah, I think. Well, I, first of all, I think that what what sort of world we're living in after the conflict depends is going to depend very heavily on how long the conflict goes and how it ends. Yeah, I think that. And if we can say that there's sort of two scenarios, scenario one is the Ukrainians get coerced into a bad deal. Yeah. And that, I would say, is going to would be a very fraught deal. Uh, you know, and let's let's and if we did the thought experience, let's think the Russians managed to mass some forces, take Mariupol, get establish a land bridge, then bomb and shell and the Ukrainians don't receive enough significant assistance and the Ukrainians have to sign a ceasefire. At that point, I would say that despite the Russians having looked a lot weaker than we thought, they would be a major security preoccupation and probably worse than they were before the 24th of February. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because 
we would be left with the Russians occupying more territory in Ukraine. Yeah, we 2014, they carved out a certain amount. They would have gone to war a second time in 2022, not achieved their full objectives, but grabbed a bit more. Right. The Russians, although they've taken significant losses, equipment-wise and material-wise, if the sanctions are lifted, are lifted, can reconstitute fairly quickly and can look similarly threatening. On paper. And, Right. On paper, yeah. but could probably also learn some lessons. Sure. Uh, and then one would be asking in 2024, 2026, of are they going to do it again? Yeah. And since Ukraine in this bad, in this putative bad peace deal would not have joined NATO, then we would be asking how can we deter the Russians from round three? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that I would find to be a relatively, a very bad scenario because uh, the U.S. would be under heavy pressure to deploy more military forces in Europe, which would make the pivot to Asia more difficult. Yeah. Um, now, the good peace agreement, I mean, if one can imagine that the Ukrainians get higher levels of military support, the Russians can't pull their act together, and after several months, the Ukrainians can really start rolling back what the Russians have taken until now. If the Ukrainians can get some, the Russians back to close to where their starting points were, and the Russians have to take that, take basically a ceasefire where they don't get anything, then I'd say that we'd be in a very positive-looking world. Um, Ukraine could easily, be, could easily be, be given some track to admission to the EU. We'd be in a pretty clear position of being able to arm them up. Uh, and Europe, with the various increases to defense budgets that have been announced since this conflict began, could field relatively impressive forces on NATO's borders without uh, without the United States necessarily needing to be as present. Mm. And a greatly diminished Russia and a weakened, a domestically weakened Vladimir Putin would essentially become another expensive client for the Chinese. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got to, they basically become Kim Jong-un on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, poor, bellicose, but very dependent on a foreign big brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that world, I think that Probably with minimal American assistance, the residual Russian power could be contained and the U.S. could devote most of its resources to pivoting to Asia and to the geopolitical shift occurring there. Um, so I think that what the post-war geopolitical environment looks like and how relatively threatening or benign that's going to look is very heavily dependent on how this war actually goes. Yeah. And I mean, they are so diametrically different. Like it, it's like you said, I mean, it really, it's a, it's one is a very positive outlook and one is a very sort of bleak out, outlook. Um, so it's fascinating to think about this war that even Zelensky was sort of poo-pooing as it was on its way to a buildup has now become almost a um, almost like an inflection point on the rest of, of the 21st century. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more there. I mean, I think that um, how this war turns out is going to be an absolutely, you know, it's going to have a crucial effect for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, amazing. William, what do you got? So I like to ask this for a lot of our guests who come on. What works or pieces would you recommend our listeners uh, either watch, read, listen to, in order to educate themselves further on the Ukraine war? And also, uh, where can we find uh, your works to uh, to hear more from your perspective? So for my particular bits of advice on the Ukraine war, I recently published an article with Mike and General David Deptula and Emma Salisbury in uh, Foreign Policy. Um, so that is titled Six Things That... NATO can do to help Ukraine. Um, then other works I would recommend uh, for trying to understand Russia and its general approach to war, 
uh, I would very heavily recommend Richard Overy's Russia's War as a treatment of Russia in the Second World War. Um, I would also recommend, in terms of more recent work, uh, Tim Ripley's book about Russia's campaign in Syria, which does a very good job showing the combination of things that were done astutely and also very poor operational practices in other areas. Awesome. Thank you. And so it, it, that, that is interesting. Is that one of the things that we talked about with um, Mike when he was on our show, especially in, in Dying to Learn and, and his sort of um, mirroring the World War One work buildup era to today. And now here we are in, you know, again in Europe is this idea that you, it's hard to glean a lot from brush fire sort of conflict. Um, but I guess that's our that's our sample size, right? We don't have a lot. Um, one of the thoughts I was thinking uh, while you were talking is, is this I and this is I apologize. I just came up with this. This is not even a fully formed thought, but it's almost like golf. So like I play golf um, and I watch golf and I think I can do that. That's easy. It's a stick and it's a ball. I just have to hit it and it goes in the hole, right? But then I get out on the golf course and it is monumentally more difficult. And so even just by watching other golfers, I'm not really going to get much better. I'm only going to sort of reinforce the shitty way that I play up to that point. And I almost need to like get with the course pro and spend a lot of time not just trying to mimic, but emulating and understanding and those nuances of becoming a better golfer. I know, is that a stupid analogy? It doesn't even make any sense, but I sort of feel in a lot of ways that this is where Russia is right now, is, is that they had some of these dust-ups. They saw us do the long war, like you even said, like they even tried to mimic some of our stuff, but they really only had like a couple times at like miniature golf, but they're like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> and then they went into you know, the masters and we're like, oh my God, we don't really know what we're doing here. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very good analogy. And that's particularly the case with militaries like the Russia. So, I mean, the United States is an all volunteer force through and through. So if the U.S. fights a small war, the forces and the behavior in that small war, one can usually assume that they in some way are going to scale up. Now, obviously, yeah, one always one has to be careful about reading one's own propaganda. You don't want to conclude from Grenada that you can uh, <laughs> go beat the, uh, you know, that you can go beat the um, the Germans in World War Two, or yeah, you don't, right. uh, or that, but you can at least scale up and think that. If you have an armored brigade that's deployed somewhere and it behaves well doing armored brigade operations, that if you have to do an, an operation involving five armored brigades, you can predict how it's going to go. Right. Now, the problem with the Russians is that with a sort of hybrid system that has some elite forces, some very some mass conscript forces, um, it's very difficult to scale up from small operations. Like I think their 2008 war in Georgia involved a total of 40,000 personnel. Syria, I think, maxed out at 20 some. Um, so if you can cobble together as the Russians, 40,000 personnel who can behave competently for five days, or you can cobble together 25,000 or so who can do well in a supporting role in Syria, can you scale that up and assume that 200,000 are going to behave at a similar level of competence to the 40,000 you had in Georgia? Right, right. And that's obviously one of the areas where, um, you know, I feel like maybe in, the analogy is is they've been given one of those sort of automatic putting machines and they've been at that for a while and they've gotten pretty good on their like AstroTurf in their office uh, right. playing with the putter and then all of a sudden they go out to some PGA tournament. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they they've never dealt with sand traps and they they don't they don't know how to use the driver. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, it sounds 
I mean, have you seen me play golf? I mean, it sounds like you, you get out of my head, Mark. <laughs> um, well, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time um, today. Uh, this has been really great. I think you've really added some clarity to what we've been seeing. You know, and it's so hard uh, with the constant um, change in the landscape and then just the um, sort of the reporting on it as well as they're doing is just playing catch up a lot of the time. And so we don't have a real opportunity as many, you know, retired generals and colonels as there are in these studios. We still don't have a lot of real like academic insight into what what is actually happening here um, and what does this really mean uh, for the future landscape of, uh, of Europe. So really appreciate you taking this time uh, in your busy schedule. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot, lot Vic. Thanks a lot, William, too. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's been a great conversation. And if you ever want to chat again, you know my email address now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, careful what you wish for. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Have a good one. Thanks a lot, both of you. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.